I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Brought to you by three curious amateurs in an internet power balloon, this is a podcast dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly and I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong. Joining me are... Mark Boyle, broadcasting from Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Dublin, Ireland. And today we'll be talking about Namibia. Namibia is a large African nation sharing its southern border with South Africa. It has an Atlantic coastline of almost 1,000 miles, known as the Skeleton Coast. Major features include the Namib Desert, considered to be the oldest desert in the world, and the famous Fish River Canyon. The country is roughly similar in size to Pakistan and is larger than either France or Germany. Namibia is also one of the driest places on Earth. Joe, what can you tell us about the early days of Namibia? Yeah, well, it seems like Namibia has been populated for a long, long time, and there's some of the oldest portable cave art ever found in Africa was discovered in the Apollo 11 cave in the Karas region. Uh, and it depicts people and animals and, and uh, geometric patterns. And they were on rocks that could be carried around. And people they reckon that's from uh, about 26,000 years ago, um, which is some pretty old cave art. So there's been people in the Namibia district for quite some time. The, the San people, who were known as Bushmen, our hunter-gatherer people have been living there since before we have any history um, in, in the pre-colonial times. They probably arrived there around the first century AD or possibly earlier, and they continue to live there, uh, living out their hunter-gatherer ways, now making up about 1% of the population. Um, but Namibia's history has been kind of defined by constant influx of different tribal groups, different ethnic groups, and then finally by the influx of Europeans later on. The, the San were kind of joined later on by, by Khoikhoi people, who were also known as the Nama, and they were pastoral people who, who had cattle and goats and would, would graze them rather than doing hunting and gathering. So this is kind of early agriculture. Various other uh, pastoral groups arrived. And then later on, around the 1600s and 1700s, we started seeing Bantu-speaking people from Central Africa moving into the region, such as the Herero people. Uh, and also the Ovambo tribe, who came later, and now make up the largest percentage of the population in modern Namibia. And curiously enough, I think uh, for the African region at this time, I guess it was quite peaceful, was it not? Yeah, reasonably so. I mean, there were always conflicts over uh, watering watering holes and, and grazing rights, but reasonably peaceful. The first European contact came in the 1400s when uh, a Portuguese uh, explorer called Bartolomeu Diaz uh, found the place, but the he didn't see much there that he wanted. There was a big desert along the coast, as we've discussed. So he landed and then didn't explore any further. So Sort of thought, ah, this doesn't look great. Exactly. And and Portugal had been interested in, in some of the places further up the west coast of Africa, but they decided not to colonise this. So Namibia uh, escaped colonisation for another few centuries. Um, 
But a really interesting part of the pre-colonial history to me is this group called the Orlam who came from the south. They were a kind of a mixed race group, the children of white settlers in, in what's now South Africa or the, the Cape Colony, uh, with kind of Dutch heritage, uh, but also of local Nama people and of slaves. And they were a very complex mixture of people, but they dressed in Western clothes, they were Christians and they had guns. So they were culturally rather Western, but ethnically quite closely related to the, the people then living in, in southern Namibia. So you've just touched on uh, two of the tribes that we're going to talk about a little bit more, the Nama and the Herero, but uh, I believe the Orlams played a key role in the sort of hostilities between those two tribes going forward. Is that right? They did. So the, the Orlam were led by a, a series of rulers who all had the surname Afrikaner and were the pr- first people to use that as a surname. Um, and a man called Yonker Afrikaner was a very important leader in and around the, uh, the, the the mid-1800s. And he became essentially the overlord of the Hereros. So the, the, uh, the Orlam and the Nama intermarried as the, the Orlam pushed north into Namibia and they eventually became somewhat indistinguishable with the Orlam just being sort of a, a particular political grouping within the Nama territory. And because they had guns and Western approaches to things and, and they, they had interactions with missionaries and so on, they were encouraged to move north and put themselves as a kind of a buffer between the Nama, who were pastoral people, and the Herero, who were also competing for, for grazing land. And they became nominally the overlords of central Namibia and were very important political players at that time. So they kind of kept things in balance. And after Yonker died, his descendants were less good, as, as captains of the Orlam nation, were less good at keeping everything in line. And this is the point where order within the region starts to break down um, and Germans arrive. A man called Luderitz. You mentioned that they escaped from uh, colonization from the Portuguese, but uh, not from the Germans. No, no. So their their period as a as free nations was, was coming to an end. Um, so initially a man called Luderitz bought a, a settlement on the coast and um, Possibly under fraudulent circumstances, and encouraged Bismarck, the uh, the, the leader of, of the the German Empire, to claim this place because we were in a period called the Scramble for Africa, where Europe was carving it up. And, Everybody's um, colonizing everything, basically. And Germany hadn't got much, so uh, Bismarck agreed, and troops were sent in to to slowly take over the region. And Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about the early days of the German colonization? So, um, before. The, the Germans came and colonized, um, there were actually other white settlers. And some of them were, Already. in fact, German as well, yeah. Um, they were a mix of uh, uh, Germans, Dutch, and French Huguenots. And they were the very same demographics that had uh, uh, colonized the Cape. And originally, the, the, the Cape was, um, uh, it had been settled, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of treks were made out of there into what was largely unknown territory, they were known as the uh, the Dorseland treks, which is Afrikaans for thirst land, which is pretty pretty accurate when you see uh, uh, places like Namibia and the, the actual rainfall they get there. It's, it's, an, it's amazingly dry. But they struck out from the Cape for a huge amount of reasons. They felt pressured uh, economically and uh, they felt they were being overly anglicized. They felt that their language and their culture was being trod on by the British. I would also say, though, it, like that 
that sounds like they are the oppressed group, but there was also a lot of issues with uh, owning of slaves. They were they were keen to maintain those rights, not dissimilar to the uh, the southern states of the U.S. in the American Civil War. So, for a mix of reasons, some some good, some bad, they decided to try to uh, retain their independence by trekking out and finding their own their own territories. And some of them uh, originally went towards the east of southern Africa, so towards uh, modern-day uh, Pretoria, and they founded um, African states. There was the Orange State and the Transvaal. They became uh, functioning republics in time. But there were also treks then back across to, to Namibia, to northern Namibia and southern Angola. So some of those uh, German uh, and, and Dutch white settlers would have actually turned up in, in Namibia in the 1840s, 1850s, a couple of decades before Germany, as in the state of Germany, actually started trying to colonize uh, the region for themselves. So there were already some some white European descendant settlers in the area. And there were missionaries and traders in the area too. So the missionaries mm. built, the, the oldest building in, in Namibia is, is a church built by missionaries in, um, in the mid-1800s. So, but when Germany officially made this country, they um, they called it Southwest Africa. Uh, that was the name of the the region up until more recent times, and uh, it wasn't particularly good environment for um, for the natives because a lot of Germans came to colonize. It was the only colony that Germany had that was deemed fit for white uh, for white colonization, and so. Quite a lot of people moved there seeking their fortune, seeking diamonds, uh, which have been discovered. There were alliances built between the Hereros and the Germans, and there were alliances between the Namas and the Germans at different times because they had these ongoing conflicts about grazing land and watering holes. Eventually, we get to uh, the one of the darkest periods, I guess, in uh, Namibian history, which is the uprising by the Herero people. Yeah, it, it began with the with Samuel Maharero leading an uprising of, of his people. He was the paramount chief of them. and But also the, the uh, they began by killing some white farmers and settlers, and the Germans responded quite strongly. But it was considered that, that, the, um, that the commander they had wasn't strict enough, so Germany sent Lothar von Trotha, who is now a notorious name in Namibia, and he pursued this agenda of ruthless suppression of the Herero uprising. And also the Nama people under their king, Hendrik Whitboy, became involved. Just so we have this clear, Joe, um, so the Namibian native people, I suppose, were living under essentially apartheid at this point. And uh... before, bef- before that was a word, yes, but they, they were not considered equivalent to the newcomers who considered this German territory that happened to be occupied by other people. They essentially revoked their rights to protection by the German state and told them to leave leave their country because they were no longer welcome in this German country. And that's, that's when, uh, uh, I guess, a series of reprisals started against the German occupiers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and von Trotha essentially is responsible for the, what's called the first genocide of the 20th century, where there was decisive military victories but then he commanded his Schutztruppe, the, the kind of army protecting Southwest Africa for the German interests, to shoot any man that they saw. And eventually they drove all of the 
men, women and children out into the desert, poison wells. And these people were killed by uh, thirst and by starvation out in the desert. It's estimated that um, between 20 and 60,000 Herero died, which is about 80% of the population of that ethnic group during this brief and period. I believe about 10,000 of the Nama as well, which yes. is about half of their population. Yeah. So decimation for these two ethnic groups during this era, and this is about 1905, this is happening. Um, and they were well and truly uh, put down. And uh, it's a really, really dark era. In in recent times, Germany has apologised for this. And in fact, family members of, of von Trotha have, have apologised to kings of the of the Namibian nations, but that can't bring back eighty percent of their population. Uh, Indeed, it can't. Uh, yeah, and there, I believe there's um, there has been speculation that a lot of the, I guess, techniques uh, employed by the German army at this time were brought forward then into the Holocaust, uh, which of course happened during the Second World War. Yeah, it has been argued this is where concentration camps start, uh, and so. The, the the fact that less than a generation later Germany is using such techniques on their own home soil suggests that this may have been where these techniques were pioneered. Yeah, I actually have a quote here, Joe, from uh, a tribal song from around this period, a uh, Namibian tribal song. It says, uh, My hunting grounds have become like a waterless land since he who settled here treats me in such an arrogant manner. And now, where may we live? We shall go forth and search. The next thing we want to talk about is how uh, South Africa became involved with Namibia. Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the uh, macro political situation at the time was that World War I had ended. All of the uh, meager colonial possessions that Germany had possessed have been stripped of it and have been redistributed amongst the victors via the uh, agreements at the, the Palace of Versailles. Um, now, among these... Uh, South Africa at this time was a, a British dominion and Southwest Africa, German Southwest Africa, which is modern day Namibia, was not given to South Africa, but put under the care of, would be the way to describe it, by the League of Nations, which was the precursor to the modern day UN. And if you know anything about the League of Nations, you know that they were uh, quite poor at their jobs. Um, so... The conditions for this uh, this mandate were that there would be no native conscription into the uh, into the army. There would be no military bases allowed by South Africa on Namibian soil, and they would, in inverted commas, support the economic and social development. Which you can kind of sound, you can hear the sound of it. It's quite it's quite vague and fluffy, and that's that's typical of the League of Nations. Uh, South Africa probably took advantage of this uh, this association. And as the 20th century went along, more and more um, turned Namibia into a, a, a part of South Africa functionally. Okay, and um, that's what we're going to talk about in our next uh, section, uh, just after this break. So the story of Namibia so far, uh, it was a very peaceful tribal country until Germany intervened, uh, took over in the 1880s and uh, committed the first genocide of the 20th century against the Namibian people. Germany subsequently loses the First World War and 
its territories are lost along with the Treaty of Versailles. And now we have South Africa taking over. Uh, Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about the early days of South African trusteeship of Namibia? Yes, absolutely. So they were they were given the mandate along with specific conditions, which would uh, make one hope that the uh, Namibian fate would be somewhat better under the South Africans. There was a very early incident which signified that this was probably not going to be the case. It was something called the Bondelswartz Affair. Uh, in 1922, so only two years after South Africa had taken control, there was a, uh, um, a very small group, uh, again, of uh, uh, black tribal Africans who rejected a proposed tax on their dogs, dogs that they used for hunting and therefore were economically extraordinarily important to them. Um, they were then forcibly resettled to a waterless reservation. Uh, and as they starved and were, were dying of thirst, uh, some of them revolted. Uh, the South Africans said that they were enormously well-armed, but eventually when, when they did capture them, they only found uh, 40 of them had been armed out of a full 600. South African army uh, attacked and killed 100, so approximately 20% of them, and then the rest were either wounded or imprisoned. So, uh, and among the among the one hundred dead were also women and children. It it actually is is like a very uh, a very small version of the of the genocide uh, in the early twentieth century, in in the way that you were describing, Joe, how they were poisoning water sources and things like that. It's it it has a significant level of similarity to and, that, unfortunately. And I, I don't think we can overstate how much of Namibia is desert. It's, it's, it's pinned between the Namib Desert and the Kalahari Desert. So water is a is always a concern. And poisoning a well is therefore the worst thing you can do. Um, in, in present day, they haven't had significant rainfall in about two and a half years. Um, to, to give you an idea of, of exactly how dry that place is. So Namibians already had a, a bit of experience uh, living under, a, I guess, an apartheid system with the Germans, but I, I think there was something similar enacted by the South African government. Is that right, Mark? Yes. I mean, the word apartheid, it means the the uh, racial discrimination that was enshrined in law and legal structure in South Africa. And literally, this is what apartheid was. And apartheid in, I think it was uh, early, early 50s, early 1950s, was extended to Namibia, where it had already been established in, in South Africa. And uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, Prime Minister Jan Smuts. He was uh, a very formative figure in, in instigating and bringing, uh, enshrining in law, I guess, all, all of these enormously hard, like, I think the reason apartheid is used and the way it's described this way is that it's not one law. It's, it's a whole constellation of different ways to keep uh, segregation as a part of society. Uh, there's laws against uh, uh, ownership of property, uh, intermarrying, and they're all specific pieces of legislation. But the entire program, to call it one, one thing and one philosophical movement, is to call it apartheid. And this was extended to Namibia. So whites were in an enormously uh, advantageous position um, from from not not just from here on, but from here on, it was enshrined in law from the 1950s. So obviously, this wasn't in keeping with the spirit of trusteeship that was handed down from the League of Nations. Mark, do you want to tell us how the Namibians sort of reacted to that? Uh, yes. So 
you're, you're right. Uh, the League of Nations only lasted until uh, the end of World War II and was then replaced by the UN, which we still obviously have today. Uh, the UN in 1966 decided that they agreed with you, Luke, and didn't say the, that this was in the, the spirit of trusteeship and removed the mandate for South Africa to have trusteeship over Namibia in 1966 which was a, a, a formative and important year for Namibia. So the South African president at the time was not uh, too pleased with the UN's uh, directive and issued the following response. The government has no hesitation in rejecting the majority opinion. An advisory opinion, by its very nature, is of no binding force, and in the present case, is totally so as you heard, the South African leader was was pretty intransigent in his response to, to this directive. And in response to his intransigence in 1966, SWAPO uh, started to move across the border from, north, from southern Angola into northern Namibia and established more training camps there. Fatefully, one in particular, at Omogulug Woambashe, which is a name I have not practiced at all. Um, on the 26th of August in 1966, eight South African helicopters attacked the training camp. Um, and this day is generally recognized as the start of the South African border war, also known as the South African Bush War, and the Namibian War of Independence. Um, there were some casualties, I believe, on both sides, but uh, it wasn't a particularly uh, uh, important or decisive battle, but it is commemorated today as Heroes Day, uh, as the day that they commemorate the war dead from the Namibian War of Independence. So th this was the start of a, a long and complex conflict that went on for decades. Uh, an important moment internationally is when in 1973 the UN severed all ties with South Africa over its refusal to cooperate with it on, on the issue of giving Southwest Africa, as it was called, some degree of independence. Uh, the uh, Sean McBride was appointed the UN Commissioner for Namibia in 1974. He was a, a former Irish minister and a founding member of Amnesty International. And he said the following about the, about the situation in Namibia. Uh, the whole question of the effectiveness and credibility of the United Nations is involved because under the judgments of the International Court, under the resolutions of the General Assembly Security Council, uh, Namibia should be a free territory under the control of Namibian, Namibian people. So that was in 1974. In 1975, I think there was a, a was it, 1975 was a key year in the in the conflict between Namibia and South Africa. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, Mark? Yes. So at this point in 1975, the the war gets even more complicated. In 1975, Portugal granted uh, nationhood to Angola the country to the north of Namibia. Now, this, in the eyes of South Africa, freed up a lot of southern Angola for the, um, for the SWAPO troops to be able to move in and out of, and it was a, used as a safe haven by them because it was outside of South African jurisdiction. This changed the nature of the combat, where the uh, South Africans used a lot more special forces, um, the very new, nascent uh, Angolan government were not really equipped to deal with uh, the, the, these strong South African troops and ended up calling on Cuba, 
of all countries to come and help them. Uh, Fidel Castro was apparently enormously interested in this and was a big opponent of South African uh, apartheid. At the time, you have, you have to remember that it was the Cold War and there was a lot of very strange alliances happening. South Africa at the time was a very strong ally of the United States and therefore in opposition to communist Russia who were Cuba's ally. So it's, it's a very, it, I don't know if, if, if anybody plays video games, but if you, if you think of um, uh, like Metal Gear Solid, sort of Soviet uh, intrigue, this is uh, typical of this kind of time. From 1975 onwards, Cuba started to send more and more troops and weaponry over to Angola to help repel the South African army. Uh, and it, it basically descends into uh, a mess of tit-for-tat operations. Um, I think there were tens of thousands of Cubans sent to Angola in the end. Um, and for the next decade or so, this just became the standard. I've seen some interviews with uh, South African troops who fought in these, these battles, and it's, it's unofficially acknowledged that there was... Uh, war crimes and atrocities committed on, on both sides. It was a very, very messy conflict. Uh, towards the end of the conflict, the Cubans uh, were able to repel South African forces from an incursion they'd made into Angola. This was around uh, 1987. Cuba sent 10,000 troops to stop them, securing Angola, uh, and allowing SWAPO to continue their guerrilla tactics in Namibian territory. And it was around this time that the South African administration decided that the, their expenditure of both time and lives and, and money was, was more than holding on to Namibia was worth. And they felt that if they were able to be involved in setting the conditions for Namibia's nationhood, that they would be able to secure uh, business rights and property ownership that they had accrued during their uh, inverted commas stewardship of Namibia in those years. So South Africa finally relinquishes control of Namibia and uh, agrees to grant its it, its independence. Uh, Joe, do you want to tell us a little bit about the early days of independence for Namibia, the transition, I guess, to, to independence? So from about 1988 onwards, there were diplomatic agreements between South Africa, Angola and Cuba that wrapped up that conflict. And it was agreed that Namibia would be given its independence. Uh, a constitution was adopted in around uh, 1990 and the first free and fair elections were held under the stewardship of the UN, which sent in observers to make sure everything was done above board and that the elections were democratic and importantly done by universal suffrage of all people regardless of race, which was a difference from uh, South Africa, which was still uh, struggling with the, the end of apartheid era. Uh, an interesting tidbit of history is that part of the transitionary forces the UN sent in were the Irish police force in Garda Síochána, uh, along with the Dutch and, and Swedish police. And they all participated in um, in observing the transition between the old police force and the new one and making sure there were no uh, ethnic conflicts going on because they were, of course, an independent observer. And I've got a lovely quote from uh, from one of the, the police officers from Ireland um, from a, a history of this era that they greatly enjoyed and found very, uh, very beneficial to everyone involved. So it says that at Ruakana, uh, Officer Tracy lived alongside the nomadic Himba people, the sixth most primitive tribe in the world, and he recalls that they were humble people with great dignity. 
He felt his rural upbringing in East Galway helped him adapt to the isolation. It was a three-hour drive to the shop. Uh, I think he's possibly overstating how, how rural East Galway is, uh, but it, it just shows that international community is very important in in stewarding this transition, and they were very impressed with the level of democracy shown. Uh, the first election was a, a landslide victory for the Swapo party, who had been leading the conflict uh, against South Africa. And their president, their longtime president, uh, Sam Nujoma, was the first president. And he served from 1990 until 2005. So he was a very long-serving president. And I think we generally agreed that it was a very stable era in Namibia's history. And it's been um, where, where inequality is still high. There was no... Uh, ugly scenes of, of ethnic conflict that were seen in, in neighbouring countries like Zimbabwe between whites and blacks and in post-independence Namibia. So it, it's been seen as a reasonably um, successful story of, of post-colonialisation uh, and a really successful experiment in, in modern-day nation-building. Yeah, one of the few sort of uh, post-colonial stories, as you said, that's, that's quite tends to be quite peaceful and has very few sort of hiccups along the road from independence uh, up to the modern day. Exactly. All, all in all, it's a good news story. There are, of course, problems, with which we'll get to a bit later on. But on the grand scheme of things, Namibia, I think, handled its transition to independence exceptionally well. And just to bring us up to the modern day in terms of politics, in, in 2005, um, President Pohamba succeeded President Ujoma. Um, again, by a, a staggering majority, Swapo take up about eighty percent of the votes in every election. They're exceptionally uh, important part of they. They are essentially Namibian politics, um, and he was given the Mo Ibrahim African Leadership Award when he retired from office, which is a, an award given to African leaders who served their constitutionally mandated term and step down when it's their time to without any conflict and are, have shown great leadership. And many years they go without awarding this award. But um, President Bahama was given it because, uh, and I quote the uh, awarding ceremony, during the decade of Bahama's presidency, Namibia's reputation has been cemented as a well-governed, stable and inclusive democracy with strong media freedom and respect for human rights. So I think that's a good, uh, that's a good rundown of how Namibia is seen among the African nations by, by its peers. That's great. So we're going to talk a little bit about modern day Namibia just after this quick break. So we have Namibia as a relatively... Uh, democratic and uh free nation uh one of the one of the top i guess african democracies in uh, the modern day and do you but do you want to tell us a little bit about the land reform joe um and how well it's worked we talked about land reform a little before the break and it's worked very well in terms of stability but there is still great inequality in uh in namibia between a very small percentage of the population own a huge percentage of the land and property and wealth so it's it's not been a hundred percent successful. I mean, it's it's only been twenty five years. There's there's a long way to go on these kind of long term projects. But now there are rich black and white people, but the majority of the population are poor and black. So there's been a change 
in the demographics of the rich, but there is still a, a large concentration of wealth, which they're addressing, and, and land reform is an important part of addressing that. But we still have about 50% of the population kind of living on subsistence farming and herding of, of their livestock. So 25% of the of the population live on livestock and uh, agriculture, I guess. But but there is a, a much larger industry in Namibia, which you might speak a little bit about, Mark. So yeah, uh, one of the reasons that Namibia was such a prize for uh, colonial powers in the past was because of its natural resources. It has uh, offshore oil uh, and modern day oil exploration and uh, companies like that, like Shell and Tolo, uh, companies you might have even heard of, uh, are exploiting uh, the oil off the coast of Namibia. Uh, also, they have huge fishing grounds off the coast, which is uh, a very lucrative business as well. Uh, there's copper mines, gold mines, uranium, and also diamond mines. Um, as well as on land, they also have offshore diamond mining rigs, which I didn't actually know was a thing. Uh, they essentially look like oil rigs, but I guess they scoop diamonds out of the ground. Um, and I had a look at where Namibia ranks compared to other countries in terms of production of diamonds. You know, there's other countries like uh, Russia and uh, uh, Canada, South Africa as well, all produce diamonds. And whereas Namibia is not ne not necessarily the biggest uh, producer in terms of quantity, in fact, they're the ninth biggest in the world, um, they are the top in quality in terms of how many dollars they can sell uh, a similarly sized diamond for. The quality out of Namibian mines seems to be top in the world compared to the other major producers. So that's a big employer, and that's a very important part of the Namibian economy. And they, they are trying to improve their manufacturing and so on because resources don't last forever, uh, as, we've, as we're very aware of. Um, but another important feature of their economy is, is, is tourism. because and, and this comes from a really important decision Namibia made when they adopted the new constitution, which is it's the only constitution in the world that specifically addresses conservation and the protection of natural resources. So it is an important part of Namibian state policy to protect the environment and to protect wildlife that is unique to the region. And this is a, a huge source of revenue for tourism because they have safaris and they have, um, they have wildlife parks. 14% of all the land in Namibia is, is a protected area and huge amounts of other parts of land are, are in private conservation hands. So they've protected the entire western coast. The result is that this is a beautiful country with uh, diverse terrain. It's got desert, it's got these rocky caves, it's got um, the, the, the Fish Canyon you talked about earlier, which I think is the second biggest canyon in the world after the Grand Canyon. Fresh River Canyon uh, has a has a massive amount of, as you say, diverse uh, flora fauna. We have elephants, oryx, buffaloes, black rhinos, zebras, springboks, lions, and actually the world's largest cheetah population lives in Namibia. Yes, and they they have a growing lion population, which is unique in the region. And the they share a park in the uh, northeastern part of the country with the neighbouring countries. They have an international park where I, I believe the majority of African elephants live. Um, but the result is that a lot of Western ecotourists go there to see these animals. There is some game hunting as well. People do go there to hunt uh, animals, very very strictly regulated, so that they have a, and, and they make a lot of money from it for that purpose because only very rich people are able to do it. 
I think something that is uh, is I wouldn't say unique to Mibia, but is 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 best exemplified by them is they're 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 very concerned with doing things in the proper way. And as you alluded to, Joe, there is there is game hunting in Namibia, but I think in some other countries there's a lot more uh, accusations that maybe the money isn't getting funneled back towards the conservation. Whereas this this is rarely so in Namibia. They they generally are credited with having the best system for taking this money from from the limited game hunting that they allow. And in general, when they do allow it, it is for an animal that is itself uh, sick or is uh, destroying uh, other animals in its territory, other often endangered animals. Um, so Namibia is, uh, is, is enormously well-skilled at administrating this, whereas other countries have, have limited success in, in making And we work. also have a reasonable level of conservation of indigenous practices of, of people living in the ways they've traditionally lived, which is interesting. It's coming under more pressure with urbanization and so on, but there are groups like the Himba and some of the Sam people who still live the kind of hunter-gatherer lifestyles they've lived for millennia, and the government is at different times supportive and less supportive of that. Um, if I could mention in passing, the most famous Namibian actor is a, is a San man, a, a, one of the hunter-gatherer people who was convinced in the 1980s to take part in a South African comedy movie called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Uh, and it's it's quite funny, if a little disparaging. The essential idea is that this actor is called Ngau, which is a, a name I had to practice pronouncing, and I've almost certainly gotten wrong, um, because all of these Khoisan languages have, have clicks in them, which we can't really, as, as European language speakers, get the hang of as adults. And... The essential story is that they're hunter-gatherers who have never seen metal or plastic or glass and a Coke bottle falls from the sky and changes life completely because suddenly there's a thing there's only one of that they fight over. So he's definitely the most famous actor to come out of Namibia, but the film isn't Namibian. Uh, there's also one other Namibian celebrity. Uh, he's a rugby player by the name of Jacques Berger. Uh, he currently plays for uh, Saracens in the UK, uh, a team not too far actually away from where I live. Um, and he's seen as their, uh, oh, Namibia's very keen on uh, rugby, and they they do turn up at the uh, every four years at the Rugby World Cup, and he has been seen as their their emblem. He's he's their best player, and and in, in living memory, he's uh, he's, he's pretty. Famous. I might have to disagree with you there, Mark, on their uh, one of their most famous athletes. Uh, I did I did look up a guy, Frankie Fredericks. I'm not sure if either of you guys heard about him. He's a hundred meter and two hundred meter sprinter. And won four huh. Olympic silver medals in ninety two and ninety six uh, for both. Uh, oh right, in both competitions. Okay. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Mark, there's uh, rugby is extremely popular. Also, uh, I think the most popular sport in Namibia is football. Uh, not American football, European Association football. Uh, the team has qualified once for the African Nations, uh, African Cup of Nations. Sorry, in two thousand and eight, but has never qualified for a World Cup. And they're also very keen on hockey and cricket. So that's it for today's episode, uh, Namibia, so a uh, shining light of Africa, I guess we can agree, uh, with a very rough past, two colonizations, effective colonizations from uh, different powers, which it's managed to uh, wriggle out from under, and is doing very well these days. Join us next time when we're going to be talking about Panama. Uh, Joe, would you like to tell people in the meantime where they can find you on the internet? If they want to, they can find me on Twitter at at Anbernach, A-N-B-E-I-R-N. E-A-C-H. And Mark? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at MarkBoyle86. 
or you can read my blog at The Toner of Leak, and it's on WordPress. You can find me on my website, loopjkelly.com, or on Twitter at, at the loopjkelly. We're going to leave you with some modern Namibian pop music. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.